thanks so much for taking a little time today. Always busy, but always nice to have an excuse to uh, slow down and talk with talk with an old friend. That's always a good thing. Yeah, no, and it's just nice to even just catch up for a second. But yeah, you were definitely somebody I, I immediately thought I would want to talk to for one of these. Even though I've I've mostly been talking to um, music folks or people who like mostly make music. For someone like yourself who has, has worked in so many different forms, like your work has just taken so many different forms. I'm just always curious how much of that has been like a long-term wish list and how much is just a part of being a working creative person that stuff just sort of happens. It's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, uh, I have, I have had some wish list items. Like I certainly think getting my TV show to cable was like, I think any, anybody who knows me and anybody who followed that even for a minute realizes like that was, I had a lot of drive. I know, um, the one book I wrote, a bad idea about to, I'm about to do that got rejected by everybody. And I think that from when I started writing that till when it got published, it was a solid like six, seven, eight years, something like that, where I was just like, Nope, not quitting on it. So I definitely have um, some things that are like this. I will not forgive myself if I don't just find a way to kick down the wall. But in general, I would say that so much of being a creative person for me and so much of why I've had kind of this manic, like, you know, I think people look at me and they go, wait, but his podcast has nothing to do with the TV show. And then he's also a stand up, but I've never actually seen him do stand up. And then, there's people who only know me from HBO and don't realize I've done all this more underground stuff. And a lot of that I think is just necessity. I think um, being a comedian, one of the advantages I have is that there are so many mediums that can contain that. And I think I was always really smart about having some back burner stuff going on at all times. Like when, when I was doing the public access show and that started to catch some momentum, I was working on that book the whole time. And then it worked out so nicely because when the book came out, there were a bunch of late night shows and I have all these connections in the comedy world and they go, Oh good. You finally have a thing to promote with this book. We can justify that. And then in reality, they'd go, we want to show clips from the public access show. And this was just a good excuse to get it on. And then, you know, and then working on career suicide started kind of shortly after that. So I've always been good about trying to have two or three things. Cause I just feel like nobody, there's no safety net with what we do. There's absolutely none. So you kind of have to create your own, right? And I think I've always been good at it. And it's 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 been fascinating too to see. I think I'm I'm watching a lot of my artist friends. And I wonder what you would think about this, especially musician friends of mine. During this uh hellscape pandemic, I feel like I'm watching a lot of my musician friends go, Oh, I can figure out, oh, what's Patreon all about? Oh, what's this? And finding these backup plans maybe for the first time now that touring's been taken away. So you kind of hope that maybe that's a silver lining of artists are finding ways to go, Oh, wait, there's other things to be doing that can help create a sense of security that we don't always have. So for me, it was, I think part of why I was kind of diversified how I attacked things was because I never felt like, I know I never know if I'm going to have a job six months from now, so I have to kind of just keep having balls in the air. Which, admittedly, for the past few years, I've been struggling to find those, and it's been a sort of interesting time. Some feelings I haven't felt in many years, but that was always the that was always the strategy. Yeah, no, I mean, and that that makes a lot of sense, and is something that I also not quite in the way that you have, but I feel like I've always had a few things going. 
because of that stability issue. Kind of like no matter no matter who you are in in a creative field, if you just sort of put all your eggs in one basket, it's not it's not always a situation that can give you a lot of security or or it can just feel very stressful, even if things are going well. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that, I think that's one thing that like, cause you know, we both have some new Brunswick roots and I do think, I do think there is a little bit of Jersey in there as far as like, I think when you decide you're going to be an artist or when you decide you're going to go for it and you're, I think part of why new Brunswick has such a art scene is cause like, if you're going to do it, you have to go all in cause nobody gives a shit. Yeah. There's no, no like, actually like I'm gonna be an artist. It's like no, you you have to like make it yourself. Like you have to find have to. that it's gonna work. You have to show people, even if you're not really trying to prove anything, but like just that definitely that atmosphere of like, oh, I have to, I have to go all in. Yeah, yeah nobody's sure. holding my hand through this. Like I think for a lot of the musicians who come from where we come from, it's like, well, I guess I'll just spend my whole life in dank basements, you know. And for me, it was like. I guess I'll just never sleep and go to New York City five nights a week, even though I have a job and I'm a full-time student because if I want to make it happen, yeah, that's how it has to go. So I think a lot of that work ethic is just sort of like, you know, when you go to a state school and when I went there, it was like pretty dingy place. It's like mm-hmm. you have this feeling that you need to escape. And it's like, and if, if you have a gut instinct that art is what's going to allow you to escape, get to work because <laughs> yeah yeah no one's right. gonna hand that to you no no, no. and yeah. and I, I sometimes i regret that though because i still kind of feel that fear and i still kind of feel that chip on my shoulder and i've i've i sometimes have to slow down and go well i've accomplished a, a decent number of things that i'm proud of and i have a pretty good life now but I still live in constant fear of like, I don't deserve any of this. What, what's the next thing? I don't know if I'm going to have health insurance in a few months. Like all that stuff's still very real too. So sometimes I wonder did where we come from. It's like, it provided me with all the motivation, motivation that led to any semblance of success. It also left me with some lifelong scars and insecurities that <laughs> success will never solve or heal. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I have been wondering that, like, is there a point at which I won't feel like I have to worry about where the next project slash paycheck is coming from? And yeah. maybe never, but it it has been something that when you're constantly hustling in that way, you don't get to take the time to sit with what you're doing as much. I mean, I know it's it's different for things that that both of us make but but I know that you know if I could have worked on a zine or a record or even just like a painting for for longer and didn't have that feeling of like well I have x amount of money and I have x amount of time before I need to uh be able to sell this thing or you know just I just need to get the next thing going um like I, I do wonder how it would be different sometimes but it's funny that you bring it up as being like a new jersey thing because i do think that like new brunswick basement shows for some reason had like had an influence on that yeah because it is and i'm sure there's other places in the world that identify with this but we we share those roots so it's like this thing where you go well we're really on to something here there's some really beautiful things being made and they're happening in 
a fucking basement of some house that's falling apart that some scumbag real estate guy owns because he owns 30 houses for college kids and he doesn't ever fix anything and you can't get him on the phone. My landlord was a guy known as Joe, the King of Kegs. He owned the liquor store, King of Kegs, and he owned like 35 houses. And it's just like, it's that dichotomy of like, you watch your friends making things where you go, man, this is beautiful, you know? And then like, I got to New Brunswick right as Lifetime was kind of winding down, you know? And like, you hear about those shows at 69 Handy Street. And I was there when the Melody Bar closed and going to all those shows. And you see stuff where you're like, these people are making this beautiful stuff in these places that are just not, this is not an art gallery. This is, there's no light, there's no sound person here. This is just people making beautiful stuff. And then you, you kind of sit there and you develop this attitude of like, well, I better start shouting at the fucking hilltops because no one's going to hear me otherwise. Like if I don't, if I don't start just shouting, I'm going to go insane, you know, because I don't want to wind up wondering what would have happened if I didn't try, you know? That's the other thing I find too more and more about being an artist is that the older I get and the more I've been around the block, the more my inspiration lies in seeing what my friends are doing or the people I admire from afar are doing. Like th- that's the type of thing where I'm like, man, like I'm watching people make beautiful stuff that feels like whatever the positive version of a challenge is, it feels like that to me of like, yeah, people are doing it. People are making stuff. Let's go. Let's re- let's do it for real. Can we up the ante? Can we raise the bar? That's kind of always been where my gut's at and more and more as I get older and more chill. Well, I mean, I think that that makes me think of the, the concept, which I feel like you've talked about before, maybe to surround yourself with people who are better than you at the thing you're doing yeah. <laughs> or who like, can ch- like can challenge, I don't want to say that, you know, better than you, but like, you know, who clearly have the chops and who are making things that you're really impressed by and like putting yourself in a situation where like you're challenged all the time. And I think that once you start, you know, once you are in a position where, you know, you're doing the thing all the time, if you don't keep surrounding yourself with that, it can kind of dry up or like it can dry up your inspiration because you're not around other people who are like inspiring you or kind of pushing you. Yeah. And those muscles atrophy fast. Right. And, and I also feel like so much of that when I think when people lose that and lose sight of it, it, I think a lot of that's because ego comes into play. It's like once you've gotten some good reaction or some good press, and then you go, and now I want to go in there and be, you know, in my case, it's like, I want to go in there and be the headliner, you know? And I think for musicians, it's like, I want to, I want to be the rock star. I want to, you know what I mean? Like, and, and sometimes that makes you feel like, I think complacent. And for me, I've always been like, no, I want to be the least talented person on the bill tonight. So it's going to have to make me work. And that work is always where the good stuff lies. And even when I go on the road, I think in my opinion, there's a lot of people in my industry who might, they'll bring a friend who's fun to get lunch with and who's good to talk to on a car ride with, but maybe not somebody who's like the best at what they do. And I always am like, can I find somebody who will come out on the road and open for me who I know every night I'm going to need to walk out there and earn it because the crowd is gone. I don't think, I think, I don't think any that probably is the best we're going to see, you know, like that's, I want that to be my starting point. 
is that crowd going, how's, how's he going to stand up to what we just saw? Because that's going to keep me honest and that's going to keep me making stuff that I ultimately feel good about. Yeah. No, I mean, and um, this is just making me think of uh, when my first band played the Screaming Females first show. I feel oh, like wow. it was their first show. Wow. And we've been playing shows for a while. So they played first and we were just like, fuck, <laughs> like, what, how, how do we follow that? Like, I just don't, you know what I mean? And, and, um, yeah. and like, she's so little, how is it so loud? <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't tread. I didn't tread, still don't tread. You know, so it's just like, <laughs> okay, I guess we're just going to do our best right now. But, but that, you know, it's, it's always there of like the, your friends and, and the other people that just happen to be in your scene can really kick your ass sometimes. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. It feel, it can feel real bad. It can yeah. feel real bad. I can, I can imagine that being, you know, being in New Brunswick when screamails are taking off and when the ergs have just put out dork rock, cork rod. And like, I can imagine that all the bands there feel like, oh man, we have to, practice more if we're playing a show with them and that ultimately is good for everybody and i mean there's so many comedians that that sometimes i think it gets a little diluted but i've always had a similar attitude of like put me in the environment where the best people are because i want to be one of those people at the end of the day and then i also feel like it has to be a similar thing with music too where it's like well if your home scene is so good and you're intimidated you feel like you're catching up well, then when you, go on to the, when you go on the road and you go to a city that doesn't have that strong a scene, you must turn around and go, oh, wait, we're a hundred times better than we were six months ago. And it didn't necessarily feel like that because every show where I'm from is fucking good. But now I realize, holy, we've been, we've been effectively like doing bench presses and squats and didn't even realize it because we're all mm-hmm. up in each other's game, you know? And that, that's a very... That's a very good eye-opening moment. To realize, like, oh, nothing, nothing. I f- that's part of why I've never left New York City because, especially for stand-up comedy, like, there's not a higher bar, and there's so many shows and so many types of shows and so many audiences. And if I'm working on a new joke, I can do it in a club, and then I can go do it at Littlefield for you know, artsy South Brooklyn people read the New Yorker and then I can go up to North Brooklyn and do it for, you know, all the hipsters and you can go do it for German tourists and you can go do it for bridge and tunnelers and you can get all that done in a week and all the best people in the country are in the city bouncing around doing it the same way. And then I'll say, I go do like a college show or I go do a show in a city that doesn't really have a stand-up scene. And I'm like, oh, I'm like a, you know, not to, uh, this is going to sound very conceited, and I'm, I don't think I'm a conceited person. But you get there and you go, "Oh, I thought I was a piece of shit," and I'm, I'm actually, I, I'm like a golden god. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm trying to, I'm like struggling every day to keep in a, keep up in a scene that is incredibly high level. And then you step out of that scene and you go, "Oh, this has me battle hardened. This has the scar tissue built up really hard. This, there's nothing I'm going to see in this." in this thing that I haven't dealt with in New York city. There's just no way. So it's a big part of why I, why I stay on the East coast. No, I mean that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and that also has a lot to do with why I've, um, you know, I, I've never not lived in a big city since, since moving out of New Jersey. And, you know, it, it is the kind of thing where even if 
like it has nothing to do with ego necessarily or like quote unquote how how good you are like how good a comedian you are or how good of a band you are it's like if you're working hard consistently and pushing yourself that then when you when you walk into a situation where like other people are having amateur hour it it can just make you see like oh like this the hard work you've been doing can pay off like and even if you're not always confident in these bigger settings it can it can just give you a confidence boost. It's like, oh no, you do know what you're doing. Yes. And people need that. You're not half-assing it. You're not screwing around. And I also I wonder what you would think too. Cause from afar, I feel like this is something that I saw happen with your band. Is like it also feels to me like the harder you work, the more confidence you get. And the more confidence you get, the more freedom you feel to be honest. And the more honest you get the more you're opening it up that people out there might go, oh, wait, holy shit, that's really true for me as well. And it's kind of like, like you said, you need to get to that point where you go, I know what I'm doing. And then I've always felt like when I got to that point, it was like, well, now I can talk about the real shit. And I feel like that's when things really started moving for me. And I feel like, I feel like I, I've seen that with a number of friends of mine in the music world. And I feel like, I feel like from watching from the outside, there was a point with Warriors where it was like, oh, they just hit the gas. And they really put the pedal to the floor. And it seemed to kind of, I wonder if it coincided with your, with a similar thing or like some other version of it. That's like, okay, we know what we're doing. Now let's say some shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there was, that I can point to like that epiphany or that, like that moment where we made some sort of decision, but I do know that there, there definitely was a, a period of time where it was like, go big or go home. Like, I'm not like, I don't have time to like <laughs> mess around anymore or like maybe put out another record or like maybe we'll go on, you know, seeing what happened. Like, no, like it's, it was just all in and you know, the, you know, there's the ups and downs of opportunities and tours and stuff, but like, but yeah, there were, it, there was certainly a point where there was enough, there were enough opportunities in front of us and enough shows happening. That was like, Oh, I can, I can take some risks or I can push us to do X, Y, Z and um, kind of put, put it all online a little bit. And, and I'm not sure that that happens without the work behind it, you know? And, and that's actually something that I kind of wanted to ask you about too, was like, if there was a turning point for you where you felt safer being more vulnerable in your work because of these things we're talking about. There were a few turning points. A lot of them with me, you know, cause I came up at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and it's funny. Mike Berbiglia has been like a big influence on me. And he pointed out a few years ago, he's like, you know, there's been like a lot of successful people who came out of UCB. You're the only one who got successful being yourself out of your whole scene. And I was like, oh, right. Everyone else is an actor or a writer. Like Bobby Moynihan, one of my best friends coming up, like he played Drunk Uncle on SNL. He wasn't Bobby Moynihan. Like, you know, Zach Woods, one of my best friends coming up, he was on The Office. He's on Silicon Valley. Like oh, everybody plays characters. And then I'm, I think I'm very much known for being Gethard. Like anyone who knows me is like, oh, we know that guy. He's the depressed dude with the big head from Jersey who... I think I hit a point 
when I was around 27, I was really, really struggling mentally. And I started with a new shrink. And this is the shrink who I talked about in my HBO show. And she was the one, I mean, she basically said, it was her version of shit or get off the pot, but she phrased it really well where she said, you need to give yourself no other option. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, you know, at that point I was like, doing some freelance writing for like some magazines when I could pick it up. I was teaching some improv classes and I wanted to be writing. I wanted to be acting, doing comedy and it wasn't happening. And for, you know, for as inspiring, I was talking before, I always want to be in the environment where everybody's great. And UCD was that in the era I was there, but it's also not easy to constantly be every time someone got a job at that place, people would turn to me and be like, you're the next guy, man. And then 10 people later, I was still the next. I'm like, oh, I'm just, I might just be the next guy. That just might be, I might just be the next guy forever. And that was weighing on me. And she basically said, almost similar to what you were saying before, when you're like, I might book a tour, maybe I'll write a new album. It was, she was like, don't accept any money for stuff that's not the things you want to do. And I was like, that is a bad idea. It's like, like, I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, at that point, I was living in Woodside in a room with no closet. Like it was, it was cheap, but it was still, I was like, you're telling me to cut off all the financial stuff. And she was just like, look, if you need to do this to pay your rent and you need to do this to eat, you're going to work as hard as you can. And she said to me something really that I, I, I never forgot where she was like, if you go and you give yourself no other option, and it really doesn't work, you are going to feel better than you feel right now. Because you'll know. You'll know that you didn't have what it takes. And she was like, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, saying you might not have what it takes. But guess what? You might not have what it takes. And it was about a year. I, I put a few thousand dollars in a savings account and just said, screw it, and just stopped accepting work for anything that wasn't totally on target for the path I wanted. And for about a year, it was kind of and it's so many weird gigs, so many weird gigs. Like one that I remember where I was hired, there was a football player back in the day named Chad Ochocinco, who was known for being like a very bizarre guy. And he was coming up with like a sketch show slash prank show. And they wanted me to write for it. And then when I got there, they just put me by myself in a room with no windows and were like, write jokes for Chad Ochocinco. I was like, this isn't a writer's room or anything. Like, weird gigs that were getting me by. And then kind of uh, poetically, I hit a point where I realized, I looked at my bank account and went, oh, if the landlord knocked on the door today, I don't have the rent for the first time in my adult life. That's never been true. And it was a sad night. It was a real sad night. And then uh, the end of that week, I booked my first ever role in a movie and it's like, you know, kind of trite to be like, well, the universe, this and that. But it's, it's also kind of like, well, if, if I had been distracted with 10 other day gigs and I had been constantly fretting about money, I don't think I would have gotten that. I think that's just true because I was putting all my energy and not like, not like hippy dippy energy. Like I was actually hustling harder than I'd ever hustled before. And a lot of pieces fell into place and I don't think it would have happened if I didn't put everything behind it time-wise. So 
yeah, I, I feel like this is a long, rambly answer to a pretty clear-cut question, and I apologize. But no, I appreciate that story, though. Yeah, um, yeah. I felt like if you don't, if you really want to do it, and at some point you got to go fall on your face or figure out if you can stand up. You got to figure it out. And if well, not, and you can that, move on and be happy, which is yeah. awesome. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you really epically fail and it's really not for you, then you could be like, okay, I did that. Now let me go do something. But Yeah. And it's like, I feel like you're the same, similar based on what we've been saying, where it's like, I love what I do. I feel perpetually lucky that I've been able to do this for so long, but it's like, if you fail and strike out and you're like, okay, I, I guess I'll just go get a steady gig with consistent health insurance and a pension. There's days where I'm like, oh, yeah. you're planning for the end of your life oh like i need to plan for next week (laughs) yeah something like that (laughs) it's true sometimes though right no totally well and and i'm wondering though too if like that level of hustle and fire under your ass made you or like gave you the opportunity to find that voice I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, I really kept kind of at a certain point just betting on myself. And I would turn in writing packets to shows and not get hired. And I kept wondering, like, what am I missing? Why can't I get it right? In the meantime, I had started staging some very strange, like, events that were sort of like kind of comedy, kind of performance art. And I had so much. I had such a lack of confidence in them, even though they went well. Like I did a thing in 2009 where I had been doing a show where I was telling a lot of stories on stage about growing up in Jersey. And these kids from NYU were all kind of like showing up to every show I did. This was like the original cult thing that had started with me. And one of them put on the internet, like, Hey, we want to, we want to see all the places in Jersey where it happened, let's rent the bus. And I thought they were kidding. And I was like, fine, do it. And they went and did it and they organized it and we took it around. And it was the first thing I ever did that got press. And I sold out like 60 or 70 seats on a bus. We went and did shows in the attic of the house in New Brunswick where I lost my mind. And then we went to the basement of the house where I lost my virginity. And like that got tons of press. And then I'd walk away and three weeks later I'd be going, how come I can't get SNL to give a thumbs up to this writing packet? And then at a certain point, I was just like, fuck it. Like I'm feel, I'm sitting here feeling self-conscious about all this shit I'm doing, but the shit I'm doing is cool. And if I'm going to be honest, like I'm auditioning for sitcoms and getting sad. I'm like, I don't watch sitcoms. In fact, I make fun of sitcoms. I don't like them. I'm sitting here yeah. stressing about why I can't get hired by SNL. A lot of friends who work on that show, but I don't, watch the show i haven't watched that show like, in i know years. i'm supposed to do this i guess. yeah but and that's how i wound up on public access television which i had a ton of people tell me that was a bad idea and then mm-hmm. that wound up being like the greatest thing that connected me with like not only did it lead to like success but it led to success where i got to do it with all my friends and support this like economy an actual thing where like 70 people had jobs like that's amazing you know and then on top mm-hmm. of it that whole public access, I'm meeting all these people I never would have met, different artistic communities, people just showing up at the studio, the bands we had on, like the bands supported that show at times more than comedy fans. And it was like, 
as you know, you're asking about like, did the struggle help me find my voice? I'm like, I feel like my voice was just (laughs) saying saying the struggle out loud. You know, Um, when I was at my best, I feel like a lot of it was just me verbalizing shit where people are like, yeah, we all feel that, but you're not supposed to say that, let alone on camera. You're not supposed to say that on camera. I mean, going like, well, I did. So with, laughed. So I guess. Yeah. And then I guess I'll just, and now I'll take a call from a teenager who will, you know, and then a lot of times they call up and be like, oh, you just said some shit that I've never heard an adult say it, you know, like that, that meant the world to me too. When I started finding my voice and expressing this lack of confidence, you know, like, I didn't, I didn't love how I grew up and I started finally like talking about it honestly. And I remember once, um, this kid who was a fan of the show, somebody was doing a podcast about the public access years and they asked him, he used to call all the time when he was 14 and 15. And he said, he was like, you know, I used to call and kind of like prank it and make fun of the guy and he would like play along with it. And he's like, and then at a certain point I realized this dude was the only adult in my life who would slow down and listen to me. And I heard something like that. I was like, fuck yeah, because I have felt perpetually unlistened to. I have felt perpetually a person who's been told like, are you sure you want to be doing what you're doing? I perpetually felt like I'm in a talk about in the comedy world, like, you know, all these people hanging out at the SNL after parties, trying to rub elbows. And I'm standing in the corner, like in a, quiet rage because I don't know how to fucking schmooze and talk to people. I'm like, it's not who I am. And then I start saying it and there's people like, yeah, I'm bad at parties too. Yeah. I, nobody told me how to get a good haircut until I was 28 either. You know, like nobody, I had literally one of the music bookers on the get there show had to pull me aside and tell me you wear the wrong sized pants. Like go get fitted for pants. I was like 31. Like, and there were a lot of people, I think, watching it going, oh, like, this guy's, this guy's like a fuck up who's really angry at himself a lot of the times. I get that. So, yeah, yeah. all helped me find my voice, you know? I had no, no other option at the end of the day. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, I think that that experience of, like, when, when you realize what it's doing for other people, that that is the best. And, yeah. like when especially though when when you're living in new york or living in a big city and you're surrounded by people who are all weird and are all doing their unique thing it's really easy to be like i'm not that special i'm not special like this this isn't noteworthy at all at least in in my case um you know talking about certain things i'm like this is not no it's not that wild to me and then we go out and play the middle of nowhere or, you know, um, just even like a small town somewhere and kids come up to me and be like, I don't have anybody like you in bands. I never see anybody like you in bands. That was so cool. And when we open, like when we open for bigger bands, they're like, we never heard you before. I was not expecting this, you know? And they're like, Oh yeah, no, like it, there's a lot that people want to connect to. People need to connect to. And, and- it's easy to forget that sometimes, I think. And it's beautiful. Right. And and you know what it is? It's very easy to forget that the art is for them. It's not for you at the end of the day. You make not it right. and you send it out into the world and then they receive it. And most of the stuff we make, they don't care. And then you find some stuff where they do click and care. And it's, I feel like it's really beautiful to hear you say that because I've had to really recognize in a way that is scary but also 
uplifting that like when I was doing the public access show, I think it was viewed as this really progressive thing, this forward thinking thing. And now I look at it and I'm like, eh, at the end of the day, it was like the whole public access run. It was me and these three other white guys meeting up on Saturdays and writing the whole thing. Like back then though, it was like, there were, you know, there were think pieces about how there were late night shows that had literally nothing but white men in the writer's room. And I'm like, well, we have a female presence. And it's like, but then I look at the old episodes and there's, it feels so like it was 10 years ago. And I'm like 10, 11 years ago, that was progressive. And you look at it now and people wouldn't even know why. And then I step back and I go, I think what I'm trying to say is like, I go to the middle of nowhere and people go, Oh yeah, we like, we remember you. We like you tell us some funny stories, man, or put on a show. But I feel like I've had to kind of take a deep breath and go, my voice matters a little less than it used to. That's a really good thing. And it honestly makes me want to cry thinking about your band going to Canton, Ohio, and somebody who's probably scared to dress how they want in high school gets to come out and be themselves, you know, thinking about like Reviver, another good example where I'm like, how much good have these as have these people done through their art and i'm just like so inspired by it and so just like having had that happen to me a couple times where people go you've said some shit that made me feel more okay and i'm sitting here and going i'm a white guy married to a lady like even in the 10 or 11 years where i've really had momentum that momentum starting starting to slow down and i'm like oh but i think it's for some really good reasons I don't think people need to hear from me right now. I think we live in a world where there's fucking kids in cages and people getting killed on the street. Like those people are being given a chance to speak a lot more. It's probably good that I feel, I feel like I'm having less opportunities now. It's scary, but ultimately good. No, for sure. Well, and I mean, um, like the, the, the artists that I'm drawn to tend to be folks such as yourself that can, take a moment and see that and not be like wildly defensive about it, you know, and understand like the, you know, identify the value and in, in your own work and, and, you know, the people that have connected with it and the good that it does in that way and know that the, the work that you do also can make us end up making a space for even more people. That's uh, the goal. Right. And it, it's, the Gethard show, which was so life-defining for me, it was canceled two years ago. And I don't even remember half the actual comedic bits we did, but I, the one, I think there's a few things that I haven't like spoken much about that I look back and I'm really proud of, which is like, there are all these think pieces about writer's rooms, but when we got on cable and I was able to hire people, I hired people who did not look like me, people who did not, lived the same lifestyle I did in a myriad of ways. Like there were, there was a, there's a guy in comedy who I had written a letter to the U S government at one point saying, I am sometimes in the position to hire people, please give him an artist visa so he can stay in the country. And then I hired him. Like those are the things that I'm actually proud of looking back on it. Like I'm not always proud of the fact that I like, you know, had an episode where I went on public television and asked a, professional kickboxer to beat the shit out of me. I'm like, oh, I was pretty fucked up in the head that, at that time. But you think about how you're able to, uh, you know, there's some people who have been doing really well and I gave them their first job and you'd go, wait, that person, they, those people were all in the writer's room in that show? The, wait, 
that guy's first time on TV was for that, that, you know, like, and that's the thing I look back on where I'm really proud of it is like, and that's where I think my roots in the music scene and the punk scene came into play in a way I'm very proud of, which is like, when you get a little momentum, can you pass it on to the other people you think deserve it? I think that's much more, I think comedians are inherently selfish people who want the focus on them. And I'm, I certainly have that side of myself, but I think I did, uh, I did try to remember like, okay, I'm, my hairline's receding more and more with every passing day. I got to bring up some other people who are going to have that fire in their guts as mine ex- pitifully <laughs> extinguishes. You know, it's like rising tide lifts all boats. So you hope so. You know, if, if you can have that mentality about it, you know, and yeah. like saying even in public access, like you realize like, oh, I did not only did I create this thing or like we're doing a fun thing, but all of these people have jobs. <laughs> like, yeah. All, all of these people have, or, or you are able to maybe create a little bit more of a community and the kind of community that you want to exist. It was cool. It, that, it was really cool to realize that. And, and I, I, the one thing I'm, one of the only things I'm really, really, really grateful for is that for a guy who's so stressed out, like I, I realized we had that community while we still had it. Like, I don't just look back with rose colored glasses. Like I knew that it was an opportunity to include a lot of people. And I will never forget realizing, because we were the hot show at UCB. You couldn't get a ticket to that show. Then we switched to public access. It was bad. And people abandoned shit, man. Nobody was watching that. And then the musicians started supporting us and spreading word. And it was so fucking cool. And I'll never forget, there's a band called Bad Credit, No Credit. And they Uh were like one of the Shea Stadium bands. Um, And their their front person, Carrie Ann Murphy, was just like, just like basically would turn off any sense of inhibition on stage. And they were just jumping off stage and blasting saxophones and people's like from six inches away from their face. And it was like, I saw them. I was like, man, it's so badass. And they were on the show and Carrie Ann was telling me that she told her parents to tune in and everything. I was like, really? Like, oh God, I'm so sorry. She's like, what are you sorry about? And I was like, well, this show is so weird and it's public access and I feel bad your parents are going to watch it. And she's like, hey, this is the only TV show I'm ever going to get to be on with my band. And I was like, that was hugely eye-opening for me because I was like, oh, like I don't have to be ashamed of the things I make. And this, this is giving someone else a sense of accomplishment and I should value that. And I should, um, I should embrace that, you know, and especially by the end of the show, I started to realize, oh, if you're like a tri-state area band, there's a lot of bands that like view it as a mark of accomplishment to come play on public access with us while we're doing the dumbest shit in the world. Like, and I realized, oh, like, these artists inspire me. I have to be open to the fact that I can provide something for them, inspire them on some level. And that's how we all survive at the end of the day, especially as people who want to do stuff outside of the mainstream. That's the, it's how we survive. So no, totally. I'm, I feel like I'm rambling so much and I'm just <laughs> no, excited to talk I, to you. And I apologize. No. And it's like, I so appreciate your, your viewpoint and your experiences here. I mean, that's why I wanted to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah. I don't, well, cause it's like, I feel like, there are so many things about this that I don't often get a chance to talk about unless I make an appointment with someone on zoom. Yeah. feels <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
Um, like earlier today, I was, I was thinking about the fact that like, like the first question I asked you about, you know, whether or not all of these things have been on your wish list for a long time and, and how the thing that you start out hoping to accomplish <laughs> is not always what you end up doing, but the other, the other stuff is really cool. And you have to, like, I wish more people gave that credit, even, even to the extent that no one graduates high school thinking, I want to be the guy that they call when they're making an action park documentary. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that's... And no one thinks, but it's awesome. Like, that's cool. It, it is. is. It's to be like, neat thing I did. And, and I think that not enough people give themselves credit for all the weird stuff that is about being themselves. And I, and it's, it, the grass is always greener too, right? Like I have friends who came up at UCB who have been on SNL, who have been on sitcoms, who are like, I'm talking about like legit mm-hmm. people who have been on networks, who have been in movies. And it was weird for me to realize that I always felt like I never got there. And when I was 20, it felt like no, none of us in that scene were going to succeed. And then you start seeing people get that and you go, oh, I want that too. And what's been so eye-opening for me is so many of those people where I sit there and go, in the back of my mind, I'm going, man, they must feel bad for me because I never got there. And then when I actually talk to them, what I consistently hear is them going, you fucking did it. Like You went and did it how we were doing it back then. You got paid to do what we were doing back then. I had to go, I had to go be like the third lead on a sitcom and play like the wacky, the wacky cousin who shows up every two episodes. And I'm like, oh. I'm sitting here feeling like I didn't make it and you must be feeling pity. And in reality, some of you guys who are extraordinarily financially stable in a way I will be very jealous of forever are sitting there going, but you get to make real shit, man. And it it was eye-opening to see that. I think realizing that you can make your own definition of success is super important. And if you set out to do, if you set out to chase some dream and it fails miserably, I think it's worth it to like take a deep breath, look around and see what you actually have at that point, you know? No, absolutely. Yeah. In this wreckage, when you feel like your life is wrecked, like what can you scavenge from the wreckage? Because that might be pretty cool in its own right. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are kind of in in our own situation doing that right now. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I feel... I feel very lucky that I got the beautiful anonymous podcast because it's oh yeah mm-hmm. I get to do it from home and it's like a gig that was uninterrupted. But I'm, I'm I uh, I just went and did last weekend. I went and did three shows at the Auto Bar out in the oh, alley yeah. behind the Auto Bar because it's like my favorite venue. And I see I I, I went on tour last year and I, I brought cameras and filmed shows in ten cities and two of the venues are already closed and wow. I think at least two others are like barely hanging on. I'm like, man, I see my musician friends. I'm like, this sucks. This sucks. Yeah. It's not, not great. Uh, yeah. and I, I feel lucky to have other, other things moving around that I'm not just, uh, you know, not just sitting here twiddling my thumbs without shows, but it is, it's, it's hard and, and, um, part of like, I didn't, I didn't do any of these interviews for a little while, uh, when shit hit fan. And I think part of why I, I started doing them again is 
because I think a lot of a lot of people are trying to like recalculate their plans and redefine yeah. some things for themselves and and you got to realize that you could I don't know yeah it's like the positive side of it is going oh I actually like working from home a little bit more maybe I should spend more time at home like with me I have a kid now like, oh, I get to hang out with the kid more that's awesome and then the dark side of it is people going I can never let this happen again like I can never be in a situation where I get caught looking and kicked in the ass this hard ever again like need to I think every artist has learned like we need to find or invent some ways where when the infrastructure falls apart and no one steps up and fixes it that we can survive so scary it's like there there just has to be a safety net and or it has to be more a part of the conversation and how you structure a creative's career yeah yeah and some of that's on us right to not just be well some people just really like going out on the road making a little cash and partying and staying up and drinking and and that's fun but this year has taught us that that's very fast and loose that's a very fast and loose way to play it so be a little smarter and uh can i ask you a question about your creative process sure go for it well it's one of the things i've always it fills me with fear, one aspect of being a musician, because comedians, the whole way it's built is if I got a joke or if I have even a full hour I want to do, I just go out there and I keep doing it. And then after the show, I go, well, that didn't work. Let me cross that in my notebook. Or I go, I improvised that line. Let me write that down before I forget. Let me switch this thing with this thing. And you go on stage and experiment with it for literal years sometimes. Whereas musicians, you have to write a song in a vacuum. And then there is a time where you have to walk on stage the first time and play it. And you don't know if people are going to be like, that's the greatest song you've ever written, or if they're just going to like stand there in confusion and be like, this sucks. Like you don't know until you do it. Well, but I, but I don't do this as much as you have described your process, but you know, you write jokes in a vacuum, you know, like, and, and you go out on stage and you kind of don't know, like the first time you don't know if it's going to go over well. And, and not to say that I workshop songs like that at all, but I do think that ideally we would play songs a million times on stage before recording them. That doesn't always happen. And I wish it did. Um, And it is a very scary thing to do that and, and release a record having songs that, no one other than like a handful of people have heard before and be like, I hope anybody thinks this is cool. Maybe I'm like over romanticizing it then because to me, I do feel like I could play a city, tell a joke and the next year play the same venue and tell the same joke per se, but it would be totally different than what the crowd saw the year before. I don't, I don't know that that, you have to have some idea of what the song you're like comedians. It's part of the charm for an audience. Like you'll hear somebody go, Oh, I'm trying this one for the first time. And in comedy, the audience goes, Oh, I get to see all the, (laughs) all the holes. And whereas you have to have some idea of what this thing is. Yeah. To be able to charge people money to hear it. Whereas with me, I'm like, Oh, I get to ask you for money. And then, handful of times a show I get to go ah guys I'm working on that one sorry and they feel like they were actually let in on some fun side of it yeah I feel like you right I've never seen a band play a song and the song goes poorly and they're like cool guys we're gonna 
<laughs> we're going to work on that one. <laughs> you know, figure out the bridge on that one for next time. Like you don't get to charm your way out no. of it. But yeah, it, 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 um, I think that's why I'm glad that I have uh, three bandmates that I collaborate with. And, yeah. you know, like I don't just tell them what to play and then hope it goes well. Like we all work on it yeah. together at least. So there's that. And there's, it just made me think of the, uh, before we recorded this last record, we played a, a few shows right before going into the studio and we played a couple of new songs and got off stage and immediately each of us without saying anything, without having like really acknowledged it on stage, we're like, yo, that song is way too long. We have to, <laughs> it repeats way too many times. We have to cut, like, you know, like that, that was like a playing it live. We're like, oh no, uh-uh. but everybody acknowledged it. And we still talk about it. And it was I, just, I, like, so I do get so jealous of that. Like I'm, I'm now at a point in my career where I can, I can afford to like kick someone some money to come on the road with me. And there's mutual benefit to that, right? Like that person gets to earn some money and maybe they're a little less experienced than them. And I have someone to lean on to the bulk of my career as a comedian. And I think this is just true. Like I, I've always been so jealous because you can have that where you get off stage and you have two, three bandmates and you can all laugh about, oh God, oh God, what did we do? Whereas for comedian, I've had so many nights where literally I bomb in... Nashville and then I go to a fucking waffle house by myself and just stay mad all night. I think there's more to like I uh that is impressive to me. <laughs> Cause like it's not I mean I did a quote unquote solo tour once like literally by myself, like drew, drove to like five or six shows and I didn't I did not like it. Uh, yeah, because it's, you don't have that you don't have that support system even just a couple friends it was not great so I when it goes well you get all the glory though when it goes well you're not sitting there <laughs> feeling like oh people are th- you know nobody's coming yeah. up to you after the show going oh man mikey can really drum huh like nobody's ever saying that you get all the glory that part's nice fair, fair. i'll take that Anyway, Hallie also, my wife, uh, you know, people, you know this, but my wife was in the unlovables where Mike was the German. She says he's like a secret weapon when you're in a band. Mm-hmm. She said that she once recorded with him and the engineer kind of sat there confused and was like, you, you literally never need a click track. What the fuck is going on like that? You're like a human click track. Yeah. He's, he's a robot. And that's the thing. It's like so many times. Exactly. People are like, Mike Eric's in your band. I'm like, yeah, I know. Have you? I would be fascinated to hear one of these with him because I'm, and he'll hear this and get sad. I love you, Mikey. I'm not maybe. I've never met anybody who has that level of precise robotic talent who can also overthink things as much as Mikey. It's that dichotomy, but that's probably also why he's made so much beautiful shit. No, he's just very thoughtful, and that yeah. goes a long way. And he knows so much. He's he's a person that like just has encyclopedic knowledge of music, and so. Yeah. So he's, he's a robot that's uh, definitely a secret, secret weapon for sure. I had another one to ask you if that's okay. And I hope I'm not steamrolling. <laughs> no, no, and, it's fine. I feel like I'm taking your time. So like, no, no, no. I, you have to understand. I love <laughs> this. Okay. That I don't get to see other creative people in the wild anymore. Because we were talking about creative process. And I was thinking the thing I worked on hardest in my career by far was career suicide which was the hbo show about being fucking depressed and i was laughing because i was thinking about well that's the thing i've put in the most actual like 
so much Gethard show beautiful and anonymous literally are unplanned they're largely improvised right. you know and that's part of the process but career suicide was the opposite it was get it right do it over and over again and i was laughing because it made me realize a lot of people would be surprised that you and i know each other through the new brunswick scene and the music scene but i think where we actually kind of got to know each other the most was one of your money gigs in new york you helped I worked were, at the door at Union Hall. Yep. You were at the venue where I largely worked. I think I think probably about 90% of the times I did workout shows. And I feel like you saw it maybe yeah. much or more than another human being. And you can vouch for the fact that there were nights where it was brutal for the audience and me. Well, I, I mean, I, I saw it a few times before I saw like the final actual show. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, I hesitate to, word, to use the word brutal only because it sounds like that was like a downer in like a bad way. And no, I, but, 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 but like, where, where the audience was like, oh, okay. yeah, I, I struggle well enough. I wasn't, I mean, it was, it's heavy, but I'm also somebody that is into talking about that. So I was like, okay, this is fine. But yeah, there were definitely times where everyone was like, an audience that came out for a comedy show. Because I've always wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm so glad this gives me a chance to ask you about it because it was like the show was over an hour long. Mm-hmm. And there were nights at Union Hall where literally 10 minutes in, I could, because the problem with that show is you're talking about stuff that's inherently unfunny. Mm-hmm. And if you miss a couple punchlines, they're going to feel you kind of reaching to make it funny, but it's not. Right. And then you're right. That's, and then you're going to, that happens. Like if as a comedian, I think with any joke, if you miss on a punchline and they sniff that you were going for a punchline, it kind of diminishes your credibility as a performer and subconsciously in their mind, they don't trust you to land the next punchline. And when that happens 10 minutes in to a show that sometimes went 80, 90 minutes and you know, you're going to tell them, you haven't even told them about the time you crashed a car yet or how you took medications that made you shit blood. And you're like, Oh, they already have decided this isn't funny. And I'm now committed to 70 more minutes of stuff that they're definite. If they didn't like that, yeah. they're definitely. And you were there for some I, of those. Well, I did not. I, I mean, and I do recognize the fact that I'm biased here, but and I'm also crazy and probably felt it. It's also when you're the one standing on stage, it feels more like that. I, mean, I know that. But I mean, I would also, I, I mean, I've, I've seen stand-up comedy where it, where somebody bombed, you know, or like a bunch of jokes didn't go well. And I yeah. didn't sense that in the shows that I saw at Union Hall. <laughs> like the, the few that I was there for seemed by and large fine, but I did see that progression of you editing things in a way that made it smoother and made it go better. And, you know, (laughs) there'd be like less hesitation. Like I could tell that you were just being more comfortable with it. And like that, that is actually really fascinating. I feel very privileged to be. And I actually, I I was there, I think I was there twice where it was my shift and I like had to be there. And then I think I went another, another time. That's huge. That's like, both of us have toured and done many venues enough to know that anyone who works at a venue is not particularly interested in giving a shit at a certain point. Yeah, so no. if someone actually comes back on their own to the venue they work at, that's high praise. 
No, the, the, the staff liking your show is the best compliment. I it, find. It, always like anytime you're, that's a thing in like the world of TV and movies. It's like, if you can get the crew to laugh, you know that it was funny because these are union. These are union people who want to go home as soon as possible. They don't need to laugh. Were you still? Were you at? You know, do, do you remember how I cheated at career suicide? I don't think. Uh, maybe I'm not thinking. You might remember this if it happened at all, because I realized the problem was like I'm talking about all this shit that's scary, and I kind of went there, and I realized oh, because. First of all, I would get off stage routinely and cry backstage. This is true. I would get off stage. I would say the first 12 times. What's that? That seems understandable. The first, I would say the first 12 times I did that show, I got off stage and cried and was like, I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I doing this to myself, let alone to an audience? But I realized that the problem was that I'm talking about all this stuff and the audience does not know if I'm okay. Like, they don't know if current day me is okay. They don't know if this is leading up. Like, that show in its early days got so dark some nights where, like, they might be, this is a morbid thing to say, but they might be sitting there scared, like, this is gonna, is this guy gonna, like, take out a gun at the end of the show and blow his brains out? What the fuck is this? It's dark. He's going to be okay later tonight. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I started, I I wrote a letter. And I would put it on every seat at Union Hall that basically said, like, just so everybody knows, I'm good. Like, you can, you can relax a little bit because I'm okay. I didn't get that. Yeah. <laughs> I did that for months. And then a big part of what I was working on in the show was, like, how do I succinctly get that out there without undercutting mm-hmm. the parts of the show that need that tension? I, I have not gone back and watched that show since it went on HBO. But I think the first line of the show wound up being, before I say anything else, I want you guys to know I'm okay. I think that I realized, just say it, just yeah. say that. But for months, I could not figure out how to relate to them. Like, hey, you can laugh at the jokes because I'm on the other side of it. So I eventually just wrote a letter and it went on every chair. I would personally put it on every chair. Be like, just so everybody knows, it's some dark shit. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's okay. You can laugh. Don't feel bad. I'm good. I'm on medications. You're going to hear about it. And just apologized outright. Said like, hey, here, 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 here. Yeah. Deal with this. I cheated. That's that was part of my creative process on that one was to actually just cheat. Well, I mean, who says you can't do that though? You can. Yeah. I, I got there. I, I knew though. I was like, this is a big part of this is probably the main thing I need to fix. That took me probably a year of workshopping that show to actually say, like, how can I make an audience comfortable enough to laugh? when there are people, large segments of crowds that are walk out of the room less comfortable than they were when they entered because they don't talk about what right. I said out loud. So how do I get them comfortable enough to laugh while respecting the fact that they will never be comfortable with what they're hearing? That, was the, that show was the thing I've worked hardest on in my entire career by far. It was wow. terrifying. Yeah. It was terrifying. And I love I mean, that you were imagine. there. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of it, but I love that you were there for some of the earliest <laughs> nights where it was just like, literally walk off stage and Union Hall for anybody listening. It doesn't have a green room. It's just a curtain. So sure. I like s- step off the stage and there's like a thin layer of fabric between me and an audience and me going like, <sighs> and I start crying and the audience who just paid money to watch me do a show is like 
24 inches away from me as I'm crying at the show I put on. There's no like door to knock on. You just like, if somebody wanted to quote unquote go backstage, they would just have to like kind of peek behind a literal curtain. Yeah. And you can't, you also, there's also not a back, you can't leave. It's not like you, you have to go out through the venue. Yeah. And they would wait for me sometimes. I want to talk and I'd be sitting there mortified because I'm like, that went really, that went really bad. And it's, I, I realized very quickly, man, I'm, I've been doing this long enough that I'm comfortable bombing. But when you're bombing with a story about the time you woke your mom up and told her you were going to kill yourself, that's a bad, that you, there's no way to just be like, okay, I've been doing this a long time. I know how to bomb. It's like, no, when that is met, when you try to make a joke as part of that, it whiffs. It's a, it's honestly a type of loneliness that I've never felt before and never, and hope like, to never feel again. You don't want to talk to anybody for days. No, no. I want to forget this. I want to burn the notebook that contains the outline of the show. And I want to never admit that this happened ever again, ever again. I mean, I, you know, we've obviously had bad shows. I don't think bands have the same sense of bombing. Because you can go get a drink afterwards with your bandmates. Yeah. Even if like you feel like you don't play well or the crowd is not really digging it and you're playing to like four people somewhere. You yeah, it's like you at least have your bandmates to be like, well, I mean, we didn't do poorly. They just didn't like it. Or just like whatever it is, like that that didn't go over well, but yeah, we're gonna go have a drink or something. Yeah. And it's, I've, it's funny. Cause it was actually Mikey. I once had a conversation with Mikey where he, he did not mean to, but I felt so bad. And it was cause of my own ignorance. Cause I was joking with him and I was like, man, like, cause it was when I had started going on the road a lot and he, you know, he's been all over. And I was like, I think he asked me how a show went recently or something. And I was like, ah, I got all the way out there and there were only like six people. And it's like, it's hard to give a shit. And he just was like, well, in his like very gentle, sweet way, he was just like, I always remember like in in the uh, in the Henry Rollins book, he talked about driving all night and there were only a few people there. And the other guys in Black Flag were like, motherfucker, these are the people who give a shit about us in this area. And clearly no one else does. So we're actually going to play harder and go for it more than the rooms where it's easy and we have 200 people there. Because these four people showed the fu- showed up, so let's fucking show up for that. And I was like, "Yes, yes, Mikey, yes, you, yes." My music, my my punk friends have reminded me once again, yeah, how to have some ethics, how to have some ethics in this thing. Yeah. And ever since then, I feel like I've actually taken some sick joy when you show up and there's only eight people in the room, and like I've been on TV and shit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yes. oh. oh. But in movies, I'm pulling eight people in like a pretty major metropolitan area. Fuck. But then yeah. it's like these eight motherfuckers are gonna never forget this. I'm gonna make sure they have a show they do not forget. Yeah. I mean, we, we played a show at a record store in um Kansas City, I think. Somebody posted a photo of it the other day and like said something to me about it. And I was like, Oh, that show was really cool. <laughs> like we had a really good time with that. And they were like, wait. You remember this little, this like tiny show at a record yeah. show? Yeah, I've never played Kansas City since then. Like we've never played there before. Yeah, like, I remember that that was fun. That's um, awesome. And, and yeah, it's like there's like, some weird joy in in that kind of stuff. Do but, do bands get heckled? 
And then I, do you just play real loud so no one can hear them or do you answer back? Um, we get heckled in between songs sometimes, partially when I try to ad lib. Uh-huh. Like if people uh-huh. can tell that you're just sort of riffing and they'll just like yell something back and not necessarily, we haven't gotten heckled like in a super mean way or anything, mm-hmm. but like we definitely got it at our quote unquote last show, uh, played, played one show on the tour uh, before this all hit in Baltimore and uh, no Wilmington. Delaware and in between one of the one of the songs some guy was like like you guys are fun or like that's (laughs) fun but it was definitely sarcastic yeah because whatever I was saying was like I think it was like about anxiety or something you know I was trying to be a little bit genuine for like a millisecond right and some some guy made a sarcastic comment and I just remember yelling back at the microphone I was like what a fun band (laughs) <laughs> like, like I was clearly laughing like I wasn't getting super defensive I was like I understand this is depressing stuff we're fun Fuck you. Yeah. And, and you know I'm not good at deflecting it at all I can't you know and that's partially why I hate ad-libbing between songs because I can't I can't riff against a heckler but not but, not nearly as much as it probably happens for comedians obviously yeah I mean it's I've always envied the idea of like if you're dealing with some asshole you guys can just start playing loud you just Mm -hmm. drown the person out whereas i have to actually speak with them and win and if i don't the crowd likes them better what's that i've kicked the person out of a show before yeah i don't Uh, think i ever have i don't think i have i mean it it happens all the time in comedy clubs but i don't think i've ever asked for someone to be removed probably should have a couple times so you have like somebody's crossed the line where you're like security Let's go. Yeah, we, we played a basement show in Olympia where it was supposed to not be like that. That seems not... Olympia! Yeah. That's not a place where bad things happen, right? I didn't think so either. But there were some kids that just came to the show to go to the show. It wasn't like us or any of the bands or anything. And I think they were just... They just were drunk and partying. And this one guy was just dancing in a way that nobody wanted. And up in people's faces, you know? Like, yeah. really getting people... And like... And there, and it was a basement show where these kids, they were there to see us and were clearly like psyched to see us. And this was actively ruining their time. Yes. And I tried to get them to stop. And at one point I actually stopped a song and just pointed to the stairs up. Yeah. The fuck out. Especially <laughs> since it sounds like he's like pushing people around in the pit and getting in people's faces. And you're been in particular, I have to imagine pretty overtly, it's not a band that's into bullying. Like if anything, it's a safe harbor for kids who get bullied. So somebody <laughs> shows up at your show and is like getting in people's faces. Like, blah, blah, blah. It's not, this is not like a gorilla biscuit show. You no. know, this is not, this is not the CB's matinee in 1989. Like <laughs> didn't match. guy was not reading the room. I, I had an incident. You'll love this. I think this, I, to this day, I don't know how I did this physically, but, Hallie and I went to see Fucked Up at Warsaw. And obviously you go to see Fucked Up and, you know, that is a band with a big energy and there's going to be people going ape shit. And I've been to enough shows in my life. But there were a couple guys who were kind of just, they'd be out in the big empty circle. Like, you know, you got all these aggro dudes slamming into each other, putting their shoulders down, really like going hard at it. But you know, there's a big empty space that clears out for that. And people go through it if they want to go through it. And there were a couple of guys who, in my mind, they're kind of like violating the rules of that. Cause they just started kind of like sprinting into the crowd 
like deep enough in that they're hitting the people who are intentionally staying away from that. So I'm sitting there like, that's not cool. And that's the extent that that goes. We've all seen that at shows and you go, that's not cool. And then you ignore it. But Hallie and I had just started dating. And at the time she had a really injured back. So the Jersey in me really, really was boiling over. And I knew I was like, we keep moving to get away from these guys and they keep finding ways to just drag more and more of this physical space into violence. And I knew, I was like, if they slam into me, that's fine. But if they come within a foot of Hallie, and they did, they came at, it eventually at the point where I was standing directly in front of her, because no matter where we went, they were finding ways to slam into everybody. And they came at me and she was right behind me and both of them hit me at once. And I've never had this. I grabbed both of them by the shirt and just launched them. And they both like landed on their backs and the whole crowd turned around and, and looked at me and they saw what I looked like. And I could feel people going like, are you like, are you on steroid? Like what the fuck just happened? You just like launched two burly dudes down. And I, even I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's love. I'm in love. So I summoned, I summoned some sort of strength that I've never known before. Yeah, love strength. I've never, never since felt that sense of physical power. That's amazing. Those are the things that you just yeah. It's like you don't plan to do that necessarily. Like I didn't plan. I was actively trying to avoid it actually. And Hallie still is like, yeah, that was that was weird. That like that's like one of those stories when you hear about like a mom lifting a car off of a baby. Like it was my version of that. It was just like, where did that? Have I ever told you that Frank who plays with you, Mm -hmm. do you know he played, he was at the first show I ever saw in a church basement in like 1995. I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah. He was in a band called missing children. He was the lead singer. How did I not know that? I I don't know. Those things about Frank and I did not, I did not know that. That's cool. I, I, I realized we had mutual friends and we wound up hanging out one day in California and uh, we went to an Oakland A's game and uh, we caught up and it was, I got to tell him that like the first show I went to when I was 13, maybe 19, it must've been like 93, 94. My older brother took me there and it Mm -hmm. was like kind of what made me fall in love with that type of music. And also the idea of like, doing it yourself and he was a big part of it he was the front man of one of the three bands that played that day that's so cool yeah. I mean, frank i uh knew frank from when he played in the degenerates mm-hmm. and um you know i he only recently started playing in warriors but i've known him for a very long time and he is one of those guys that like he was in the scene definitely before i was and you know um that's almost not surprising. It's like, of course, Frank was there. <laughs> it was like, yeah, he, he helped light the spark that I really think has helped me like call the comedy industry's bluff and be like, oh, no, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'll follow my instincts, even though they're clearly wrong. Like that all comes down to seeing punk bands when I was a kid. Not for sure. Like, I think I'm going to, I think I'll take a chance on doing it my way, actually. And Frank yeah. was there screaming his head off. I bought a seven inch. I wish I still had that seven inch. Oh man. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I feel like I'm just eating up your uh, entire team, but a joy. Cool. Well, until 2021, I guess. Sounds good. Great seeing you. You too, Chris.